Good morning, or good afternoon, or whenever you may be watching today. So glad to be here with you. Uh, you know, you and I are always putting our hope in something, maybe even a little bit more than we talk about or think about. In fact, I think we use that word hope a little bit more than we think. I sure do hope we win the game today, maybe you say, or I hope I do well in my recital this week, or maybe I hope I pass my finals. I know that's something else on people's mind right now. I hope everybody can get home for Christmas. Hope, hope, hope. We talk a, a lot about hope. Maybe we're built for hope. I don't know. Maybe we've been engineered to have a hope. Perhaps the language of hope is on our lips so much because we live in a world that frankly seems that hope is temporary or maybe even often dashed. Sometimes it's hard to have hope. Sometimes we want to hope, but we can't find it. In our work, our families, our sports, and even in our own hopes and dreams, we all deal with brokenness of hope. We all deal with those moments when hope seems out of reach. And maybe you've tuned in today and, and maybe your heart's a little bit heartbroken. Maybe hope has diminished in your life. Maybe the hope for your future or your career. Maybe the hope for a relationship that seems so real. Maybe it's the hope in the world that seems so hard to grasp right now. A hope for peace. We used to hear a lot about world peace and now that seems almost hopeless. But God created our lives to be propelled and directed by hope and intends for us to have hope. He meant for our capacity for hope to drive us to Him because ultimately He is our hope. Paul David Tripp wrote a blog with a line that caught my attention this week. He said, if you look and listen carefully, this season, talking about the Christmas season, this season will remind you where true hope is to be found. That's our word about Christmas, one of our Christmas words, right? There's a lot of talk about hope. Christmas cards talk about hope. Tripp continued, he said, The Christmas story reminds us that hopelessness is the only doorway to true and eternal hope. It's only when you give up on you <laughs> that you seek and celebrate what God in holy love offers you in the person and the work of His Son, Jesus Christ. And then he finishes, it's true that hope isn't a thing, it's a person, and his name <clears throat> is Emmanuel. Well, as we think about Christmas and entering this Christmas season and beginning this Christmas series, I want to start with this idea of hope. The Bible has a whole lot to say about hope. It, it, it talks about how much it's needed. It talks about how it's obtained. And it frankly even talks about why we need hope. So for the next three weeks, we're going to be exploring a text in one of the New Testament letters of Paul that will point us to how we can find true and lasting hope. I love the letters of Paul. I want to look this morning at, at and actually for the next few weeks we'll be looking at, Paul's letter to the Galatians. In Galatians chapter 3, I want to jump in in verse number 10 and read about four verses and then we'll unpack it a little bit to see what Paul says about hope. That is, is hope available? Uh, if it's available, how do we receive it? And finally, why do we even need this hope, especially eternal hope? Well, let's jump in. Now, before I actually read, I want to talk with you a minute about the setting. Anytime you read Scripture, context is very important. And we need to understand the context of the letter. Why is Paul writing this letter? And what's the intent of the letter? And then it helps us to understand the letter. Well, at least one thing Paul is addressing in the book of Galatians, or the letter of the Galatians, is the problem of hypocrisy. The problem 
of what we might call um, um, legalism, spirit, uh, legalism that, that is trying to come and sort out the idea that maybe if we can just live good enough, maybe if we can just let our good outweigh our bad, maybe if we can just do enough good things, God will see us as justified by that, and, and God will be happy, and God will be pleased. And so Paul is going to say in this letter, that thinking is problematic. <laughs> that problem is not going to work, or that situation and that thinking is not going to work. And so let's look at why. He says in verse 10, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. <laughs> okay, now that's not what you expect to hear at Christmas, or maybe not make you feel warm and tingly. But he says, what you need to understand is, you need hope because right now, all who are relying on their works, their good deeds, their efforts, are under a curse. He continues, because it is written, he's quoting the Old Testament now, Everyone who does not do everything written in the book of the law is cursed. Now it is clear that no one is justified before God by the law, because the righteousness, or the righteous, I'm sorry, will live by faith. But the law is not based on faith. Instead, the one who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, because it is written, cursed is everyone who is on a tree. The purpose is the blessing of Abraham, that the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles by Christ Jesus so that we could receive the promised spirit through faith. Now, as you read that with me, you probably understand there is a lot to talk about in that particular passage. So we're going to take three weeks to unpack it, if that's okay. I'm going to start today with just the first couple of verses and see what we learn about hope. In this letter, Paul is offering hope to the Gentiles by first making them aware of some who were offering hope, but a false hope. There were some who were saying, we call them the Judaizers, the Judaizers are telling these new Christians that they'll be blessed if they'll just keep the Mosaic law, if they'll just keep the law of Moses, if they'll keep the instruction that Moses had written down in their Hebrew scriptures, in our, what we call the Old Testament. If you can just do that, they're teaching, everything will be fine. You'll be blessed of God and God will justify you um, by those works. Now, the problem is, that sounds very familiar to me. The reason I want to bring this to us today, even though this letter was written years ago to a different people, I think it is so relevant to us because we hear that same false hope given a lot today, don't we? Doesn't it sound familiar? Because many times people will tell you today, you know what? You just keep the Ten Commandments and everything will be fine, right? Or someone will say to you, you know, you just do the right thing and you're going to be blessed. Now, the problem is, is twofold in that thinking, right, immediately. And one is that nobody can keep the Ten Commandments. And by the way, how many of you understand, either in your own life experience or in the experience of someone close to you, that sometimes even when you do the right things, you are not seemingly blessed? So what do we do with that? How do we deal with that? I think Paul is telling these people that there's hope. But the real hope comes not through what we do, but because of who we are. Let me say that one more time. The real hope, he's going to say, is not based on what we do or don't do, but because of who we are in Christ Jesus. So let's just look at the text a little more slowly and see what we can learn. The first thing he says is that we're clearly, clearly we are under 
a curse. And he defines this curse as a curse of sin. Uh, let me just read it. He says in verse 10, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. All who think, here's what he's saying, all who think that, that if I can keep the law, I'm going to be all right. He says, no, you're under a curse. Because it's written, everyone who does not do everything written in the book of the law is cursed. Now, if you think about it, he's saying the same thing I just said a moment ago, or I guess more important, more accurately, I'm report, re, re, um, repeating what he said. And, and that is that no matter how hard we try, we can't keep the law of God. We can't keep the instruction that God has given us. We can't keep those Ten Commandments. What's he referring to when he talks about this curse? He says, well, this curse, the idea of this curse is that we can't keep the law that God requires for us to keep. That's a problem. If we can't do it, but we must do it, where are we ever going to settle that problem? Specifically, I think when he talks about this curse, he's talking about the curse of legalism. An effort to be justified before God by our actions, but ultimately the curse is sin, and the fact that sin separates us from God. That goes all the way back to the beginning, and it would take some time to unpack it from the book of Genesis through the book where we are here in Galatians. But the point is that this curse of sin has caused a problem for us, a separation for God, this, for us, this, super, this uh, curse of sin has separated between me and my God. How do we bridge that separation? When Paul spoke of the law, he was primarily referring to keeping this Mosaic law, but in a broader sense, he was referring to any human effort by means of some external moral standard or behavior. Again, we call this self-righteous legalism. It's alive and well and thrives among people today. As a matter of fact, I've got to be honest with you. At one time, this moral self-righteous legalism had its grips on my throat and frankly can choke someone out in a hurry. As a matter of fact, if we're not careful, we get so busy trying to prove ourselves righteous when we are not righteous that it becomes a struggle. And we begin to feel hopeless. I can't keep all the law, so why should I bother to keep any of it? Are we impacted by this curse? Of course we are. He says in the verse very carefully, he says, everyone who does not do everything. And then he says, no one is justified before God by the law. The key words, of course, being everyone and no one. Everyone is under this curse. Every one of us is separated from God. Every one of us has this law hanging over us that we cannot possibly keep, and therefore we have no way of being justified before God. In fact, when he wrote to the Romans, Paul put it this way. He said, for all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. All of us have sinned and fall short of the expectation that is needed. All have sinned, Paul said. Now, now that sounds really, really hard, and for, sometimes we can't grasp that. Sometimes we think, well, maybe that's true of you, but I don't know about me, but what are we talking about? I'm talking about this curse, this curse of sin, this penalty is due to sin. So what is sin? If sin separates us from God, what is sin? John MacArthur writes it this way. He says, if you want a simple definition of sin, 1 John 3, 4 will work. 1 John 3, 4 says, sin is the transgression of the law. 
MacArthur adds, simply put, any violation of God's law constitutes sin. Anytime God's law is broken, that is sin. Everyone who lawlessly violates God's law in any part has committed a sin. So the standard by which sin is defined is the law of God. The standard of sin is not cultural. It's not a matter of cultural values or cultural morals. It's not a matter of some social ethical system that has been established by men. The standard by which sin is defined is the word of the law of God, the law of God, the scripture in which God has revealed his moral law and violation of that sin. So you see, no one is justified before God by the law. That's what Paul is saying. There's no way we can keep the law. Now, I know what you think. You think, but Pastor Eddie, you don't understand. I'm really a pretty good person. And most of the time, I do really, really well. Well, I, I will give, I'll grant you that, okay? I'll give you that. There are days when we do really well. There are days when we are on our best behaviors. There are days when our thoughts are on the best of things. There are days when it seems like we are progressing well and keeping up with the law, the things that we know we should do and not do. And there are but won't you be honest enough to admit with me that there are also days, <laughs> and in my life, they outnumber the good days. There are also those days when I fail miserably. When I realize that whether it's in a thought or an action, whether it's a deed or an attitude, there are those days when I fail miserably. And what Paul is saying is those days count. Doing the best we can is just not good enough. So we see this, law, this curse is sin. We see this curse is the, uh, the inability to fulfill the works of the law or to fulfill or to keep the works of the law. We see that this curse is affecting all of us. And then in verse 12, we see the curse is at odds with faith. It's actually at odds with faith. The law, verse 12, let me read it again. But the law is not based on faith. Instead, the one who does these things will live by them. James Montgomery Boyce says, faith excludes law, and law by its very nature excludes faith. They can't mutually exist. And yet we're told that God is pleased when we walk by faith. He wants us to walk by faith, trusting Him, trusting His promises, trusting Him to take care of us, and trusting Him to take care of this issue we have with this curse. So this curse is at odds with faith. It affects all of us. It's universal. And it comes because we cannot keep the law no matter how hard we try. But then the good news is, <laughs> this text also tells us that the curse is defeated. That's next week. We'll talk more about it. But I don't want to leave you hanging there. I want you to understand this curse is defeated. And while this curse has a grip on mankind, when Jesus came, it was hope. Through Jesus, we have hope that the curse can be defeated. The curse is broken, and we live free in Him once again. So what are the takeaways from this passage for this week? A couple of things I want to throw out there for you to chew on and think on, maybe a little bit through the week. First of all, I think we need to understand from Paul's writing that trying to live right to please God is a hopeless effort. 
if your effort is, you know, if your effort is what you're relying on, you know, I don't know how many time I, times I talk to people and we talk about a relationship with God and, and someone will say to me, well, I think my relationship with God is good. I'm trying hard to do everything he tells me to do. And, you know, I'm trying to not do the things I know I shouldn't do. And, and you know, I'm working on, I've, I've asked people before, do you know, are you sure of your salvation when you get to heaven one day? Are, are you going to be welcomed in by the Lord Jesus? And, well, I'm trying hard to get there or I'm hoping to get there or I'm doing my best to get there. The problem is trying to live right to please God is a hopeless effort. We can't, no matter how hard we try. Second thing I want you to see is you are cursed because you're separated from God by sin. I want to be sure you understand that. The problem is not the law. It would be easy for us to say, so see, that's the problem. God has created this law that has made it impossible for us to come to him and to have a relationship with him. He must want us to die and go to hell. And it would, God must be this unjust God because he's given us this instruction. The problem is not the law. The problem is the inability of you and I through this curse of sin to be able to keep the law. It was a man's choice. Trace it all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. There's more involved in keeping God's standard than just adhering to what is culturally acceptable. We have to understand that you're cursed because you're separated from God. I'm not sure if we understand the impact of that. Separation from God. I'm convinced that that is far greater in a pro- as a problem than we ever come to grasp. Third thing I'll say is this. I think this, this passage teaches us that our clear response is not to do something, but to yield to someone. Not to do something. We always want to do something. It's easy just to do something. What can I do? Well, frankly, everything has already been done, so you're too late. There's nothing to do. The response is not to do something. The response is to yield to someone, to yield to Jesus Christ, to yield your life control to him. If you can't do it, why not yield your life to him and allow him to his life, live his life in you and accomplish those things that you cannot accomplish? How do I do that, Pastor Eddie? By believing, by trusting, by depending upon him Gutsky said it well in one of his commentaries on Galatians. I thought he said this really well. We have to be careful about this idea of believing. Because I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, I believe in God, and I believe everything you said. I just, I, you know, how can I trust? Listen carefully. Here's what he said. He said, believing is to the soul what swallowing is to the body. Swallowing is something a person does. When it's said that swallowing is the way one lives, what is really meant is swallowing food is how one lives, not just any substance. A person could swallow poison, but that would be fatal. The same thing he says is true of believing. When it is said the just shall live by faith, it is meant that the, that the just man will live by believing the promises of God. It does not mean believing anything and everything. So you see, it's important that we understand that believing is important, but not just believing anything, not believing what our culture tells us, not believing what a professor tells us, not believing what someone, our friend even tells us, but understanding that there is an absolute and that absolute in this equation is the word of God. So summing it up, let's talk about 
Let's talk about this curse and this hope. And understand that there is hope. One of my favorite Christmas songs is Joy to the World. <laughs> Probably it's known universally, and even people who are not followers of Christ know the song and sing it, particularly at this point of the season. As a matter of fact, I've been told that it um, uh, is the most often, the, the, the number one Christmas song, that it, it has more um, plays on, yeah, on uh, um, media than any other songs, and Joy to the World is familiar to all of us. Did you know it was written by a man named Isaac Watts in 1719? And Watts based this song on the hope that was found in Psalm 98. He often wrote hymns, and he wrote many of them. He often wrote these hymns based on one of the Psalms. And Psalm 98 is a psalm of hope. It's a song of joy. It's a song of shouting for the Lord's <clears throat> coming. Now, ironically, <clears throat> Psalm 98 <clears throat> led Watts to write a song about the Lord's coming, really intending it for his second coming. But it has been taken to be important to sing for his first coming. The night he came and the angels sang. The night he was born in Bethlehem and laid in a manger. The night the angels said, joy to the world, your Lord has come. And so this hope brings great joy. And so Watts wrote the song. Well, in verse 3, we often kind of tuck it away. We all know the first verse <clears throat> of Joy to the World, but do you know the third verse? Here's what it says. R Watts wrote these words. No more let sin and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. Why? Because that was the sign of the curse that God spoke in Genesis 3. Now again, he's quoting scripture. So no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. And then it repeats far as the curse is found. Watts was very much aware. The scriptures teach us from the Old Testament to the New that there is a curse that has spread over all mankind universally. The curse of sin. The curse <laughs> that we cannot keep the law. And now he says, we joyfully long for the coming of the Lord who will make his blessing flow. Blessings are the opposite of curses. We'll talk about that in another week. Make his blessings flow far as the curse is found, meaning that his blessings, his grace will flow throughout the world. His grace is also universal and available for you. So if I had to sum this up in a takeaway, I would just simply put it this way. The curse is that you can't save yourself, but the hope is that you don't have to. See, Jesus is our hope. And so at this Christmas season, when we think about his coming, yes, it is a lowly coming in a manger, but he is coming to make a way for our sin. We'll see that next week when we look at that important 13th verse in this text that says that Christ, Jesus, took our curse. Ah, we'll talk about that more next time. For now, Jesus is indeed our hope. I want you to be able to cling to that today and hold to that today. If you need to talk to somebody more about that, we have people ready to talk with you, pray with you, 
They would love to just share with you more about this curse and more about this hope and how we have this hope in Christ. I hope you'll tune in next week where we will talk about this same idea from Galatians and this same truth. And once again, Merry Christmas season as you think about your hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for the blessings of Christ. Thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus. Hope to be freed from a curse and blessed through eternity in the presence of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.